Hey, this is Mike from the High Hash Rate Podcast, the podcast where Bitcoiners get high and shoot the shit. Tonight's episode is with a very interesting guest, Diligent Ninja, or Ninja Diligent underscore, uh, one of those things. Comes on, talks about all kinds of stuff, about living off the grid, about uh, depopulation, and uh, many, many more interesting subjects. So uh, let's uh, go to the episode. Yeah, they're hard-earned lessons, man. Like, right. I, I literally lost not only what was like a small fortune in like 2013, 2014 dollars, but like I lost what would be fuck you money today. Like absolutely like That's Michael Saylor money today if I would have just held on to that. And so, yeah, it, it's, it is tough, but it does sort of lead to that um having no patience for people in their scams it's like just just take possession of your own coins and secure them to the best of your ability and don't trust anybody hey everybody this is the high hash rate podcast i'm mike and i'm dan and this podcast is just two plebs getting high and talking about bitcoin life and the absurdity of the fiat world our guests don't necessarily get high with us and you don't have to either but it helps Okay, so here we go. Uh, hello, welcome everybody. This is the High Hash Rate Podcast. I'm Mike. I'm with my buddy Dan here. And this is a podcast where just Bitcoiners getting high, shooting the shit. Today we have an awesome guest uh, that I'd love to hear from, uh, Ninja. Uh, and that's all I have. Yeah, that's all I know. Yeah, yeah, that's all I know. This dude's name is Ninja, and I want to speak with him. Ninja, what's going on? Hey man, not too much. Just puffing a vape pen. So, I don't know. I got on like Bitcoin Twitter. I don't know, like a year, year and a half ago. And I just remember there's this dude with like some of the what's the fucking word based? What do you want to call it? Memes. He was like posting that shit. And I think he's gone through about four or five different uh, ghost of and different iterations of his handle. But uh, that's how I found this guy. And then I, I noticed on Twitter, fucker, he's like lived like he was like snowed in somewhere in like the mountains and he's living off the grid and somehow he still got time to shit post all day on fucking twitter too so i'm like what is this guy doing like where does he he's like somewhere in the middle of nowhere he's got like ice dams in his way can't get to town uh i felt like i heard this story i felt like he's like a super pleb right exactly yeah. exactly so that's just kind of the introduction man like what uh what what made you decide to fucking go out there and 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 live live off the grid? Um, I was paying too much for rent, and I just didn't like the way things were going. I saw, you know, some of the coming problems uh, with the vaccination mandates and things like that, and I just decided uh, I'd rather not be in a dense urban population center. I wanted to be back out in the mountains. Uh, I lived here before, and I really enjoyed living out here. I didn't do it off grid the last time I was here, but I just knew that uh, I'd rather be here than in a downtown of a city if things got ugly. And uh, I might have been, I might have jumped the gun a little early. I might have left maybe before it was strictly necessary, but I had a great time out here this winter. Um, and if I can do it through the winter, I can do it the rest of the year. So I'm looking forward to staying out here. So. Is, is it pretty tough? Like, are there been times like in the winter where you're like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, or I can't, this is gonna, I gotta go back or is this, are you pretty much well equipped? No, I, I love it. Yeah, no, I'm pretty well equipped. Thanks Elon for Starlink. I mean, without Starlink, I would literally be going nuts out here. Um, but but I've, I've had Starlink and so that's why I'm able to, as you said, shit post all day. Um, it's pretty great. All I do is chop wood, carry water and, and post shit on Twitter. Like you literally just chop wood, carry water, right? Yeah, no, I get I get my water from the river. You know, it's 100 feet away, just as far as my Starlink cable will reach. Um, I got a chainsaw and I cut down trees and chop them up for heat and uh, cook on the wood stove in my cabin. What did you, what is your background? Like, what did you do when you were still living in city life or at least, you know, civilization? Um, I worked in the cannabis industry for the last 20 years. Hell yeah. <laughs> Have you noticed a, a shift or change that uh, is dramatic? I'm sure there's probably plenty. 
Yeah, sure. Since legalization, I mean, it's become a lot harder to earn a living on, on illegal cannabis. For sure. <clears throat> so I was curious, like what, 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 what does it take for someone to make that decision to do what you've done and live life the way you are? Um, I guess it, you know, without getting, obviously without getting too personal. Well, I mean, if I just back up a little bit, um, in 1999, I read a book by Tom Clancy called Rainbow Six. And in that book, which I was also playing the video game, it was a great game. Yeah, right, right. In, in the book, the, the plot of the book that you don't really find out till all the events unwind in the end, but the plot of the book is essentially that an engineered bioweapon was released on the public in order to scare them into taking a lethal vaccine. And I watched the Corona events unroll in like January, 2020. And I'm like, man, this sure looks a lot like Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six, like way too much for my liking. Now, of course, it was pretty early to fully believe that, but I was just like, I considered the possibility that that's the scenario that was unfolding. And the last 24 months have really like, hardened the idea that that is the exact scenario that we're living in so that's pretty much been the basis for me wanting to be away from the dense population centers i like the phrase uh make yourself expensive to tyranny uh credit to laser hoddle on that but i i basically just chose to put myself in a position where I'm not one of the low hanging fruit. I'm not one of the ones who will be easiest to round up, um, stick in a dense, uh, you know, in, in a stadium or in a concentration camp and forcibly vaccinate. Right. So uh, he's stepping away. Um, you, so you kind of like saw this right away. You think like when, uh, when all the COVID shit hit, like you kind of suspected it was going to be the way it is. A hundred percent. And at first, you know, I was kind of hoping that I was just being paranoid, like, right. you know, hopefully this isn't actually what's happening, but I eyes open. I thought there's a significant chance that maybe that is what's happening. And then mad credit to uh, Chris Martinson at Peak Prosperity. Uh, he ran what was originally a financial podcast and they were talking about the upcoming uh, supply chain disruptions due to COVID. And then it's, through his, you know, through, through his analysis, um, he really started to shift as he saw that the data and then headlines surrounding COVID just weren't lining up. He kind of shifted his focus away from the financial and more into um, the medical and, and epidemiological and the analysis of COVID and why the narrative didn't line up with the facts. And so I was watching his daily updates starting from whenever he started, maybe March, 2020. And uh, he kept me very informed. And um, again, just helped to solidify the opinion that what's happening is part of a global depopulation agenda. Although I've never heard him say that. So uh, I've, I've said it on here before, and like, I think I went on a different one. Like I've been following really closely the situation with like food shortages right now, uh, energy shortages, the, what, you know, what China's doing. And I kind of suspect that China's like shutdowns are a lot more about um, trying to save energy and food than they are about um, COVID lockdowns. It just yes. seems like we're coming up to a really, really harsh reality, probably in the next six to 12 months where there's going to be a lot of famine. There's gonna be a lot of revolution, a lot. Of, so you're, I think that's coming. And I think it's, I think it's going to kind of happen. Like they're going to like pull the plug kind of like Afghanistan. We left Afghanistan where it was just, they're saying everything's going to be fine. And then they're on their way out the back door. And as soon as they got all the gold cash in the bags and they throw it on the helicopter, like, fuck you, we're out. And it's just all going to descend into chaos. So that's how I think. Who's leaving? What do you mean? Like, where are they going? Oh, I, I just mean the, the elites in society, the, the politicians, whoever, the people who know, who are kind of, making decisions, whether it's at the Fed or at, uh, at the Treasury, they know that they can't soft land it. They know that they have uh, 
whether purposely or through an app or, you know, ignorance or just being terrible at their jobs created this situation of mass shortages, uh, a, a, a money supply, um, like a tightening that's going to just, it's going to rip everybody's face off. It's going to cause tons of uh, bankruptcies, all kinds of stuff like that. It's going to be crazy. And they're not going to soft land it. They are going to get out of the way, take their winnings. I mean, the, the Fed, those guys all sold all their stocks in September of last year. And the market's just been on the down and down since then. So, yeah, I think I think a lot of chaos is coming. I don't know how bad it's going to get in, in, in specific parts of the United States. Downtown, big cities, it's probably fucked. But um, I don't know how bad it's going to get. But there's going to be places in the world that are going to be absolute war zones. It's, I mean, Sri Lanka is kind of one of the first ones that's going. Obviously, Ukraine is is a literal war zone right now. But parts of North Africa, it's going to be really, really bad. So what he's saying when he's, you know, he wanted to get out of the city, he wanted to be uh, out of these inner cities, be expensive to tyrannize. That is, um, I think he's probably went there a few months early, right? But like Mm -hmm. probably only a few months early. Mm -hmm. So so I actually actually went uh, many months early. I left in April of 2021. And then I came back when I realized how early I really was. Yeah. Uh, I came back to stock some more supplies and and just to do a few more things while I had the chance, because yeah, I I was definitely early. Um, but you know, with that said, are you guys familiar with the Deagle report? No, Let's explain it to me. Yeah. Deagle.com is is like a I, nobody really knows who runs it, but uh, their intelligence reports have been quoted by Stratfor, so they apparently have some legitimacy. And in 2017, Deagle did a world GDP and population forecast for the year 2025. And by the year 2025, Deagle predicts a 66% population reduction in the United States of America. They predicted a 33% population reduction here in Canada and only an 11% population reduction uh, worldwide. So it does seem like they're predicting that the Western nations in particular, uh, I think UK was pretty savage too. Um, What's the are, range of time, on that, by the way? Well, again, the predictions were by made in 2025. That's right. Okay. That's right. 2025 was the date and it was done in 17. So 17, we're coming up okay. on. Wow. The, wow. 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 Right. Right. And so that actually goes back to what has convinced me that this is part of what I would call a global population depopulation agenda. And in 1978, the World Health Organization said on record, and this is in a document that is still published in PDF format on their website to this day, they said, um, and I'll try to quote this as best I can from memory, that uh, global depopulation is their agenda. The World Health Organization said this and that they would hope to achieve it through voluntary vaccination programs rather than having to resort to forced sterilization. So to put that in another way, the World Health Organization thinks that too many people is the biggest health problem on the planet and that they would be willing to forcibly sterilize people against their will if it comes to that but that they hope that they can achieve it through vaccinations instead. So make of that what you will. But personally, I think that this, again, Venn diagram overlaps with Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six plot. And that's the scenario that I think we're living in right now. You know what I also see is uh, children of men right there. That's right. That's amazing. I didn't even realize that that's, you know, they never gave an ex- explanation of why, ever, you know, it was some sort of magic thing, right, in, in the film. But what you're saying right now is like, wow, absolutely uh, blows my mind. Could be, uh, <clears throat> could be something like that. It's very scary to think about. Obviously, people are still having kids, so maybe it's not that exactly, but uh, that's scary as fuck to think about. So... Well, here's like, I mean, put all that together, the stuff I was talking about, like the famine and shit that's coming, like the, the heart energy resource, everything's shortages. So put all that into context. Uh, this is where I think, or the way I thought about it was where like the Bitcoin mining is really a defense mechanism because how do they, how do they control you or like control 
large pop, large swaths of the population. And there's different ways, but essentially it boils down to, right? Like they, they control your cost of capital. They're raising interest rates, right? They're making it more expensive to do anything, whether they need to or not, that it does make things more expensive. Uh, and they're, they're, so they're raising the cost of capital. They're, they're limiting your energies with all the ESG bullshit. Um, and if they can make it expensive for you to generate energy, and then they can make it really expensive if you don't generate the right energy, you're fucked. There's nothing you can do. Well, if you have mining, like mining kind of is a defense mechanism there because these companies no longer need the subsidies. They can withstand the high cost of capital because they've got a consumer and they can find, they'll eventually find consumers when the central control has basically strangled the market so badly that energy is too expensive and energy is too uh, scarce they'll find they'll start going to the alternative sources where the miners are kind of uh, providing that subsidy there for themselves so it's creating that kind of like that freedom money to resist this type of um this type of offensive that they're kind of working towards some of it's yeah, medical, but yeah and i'm thinking about it from the energy standpoint yeah absolutely and and that's kind of how i got into it too i mean aside from the little tom clancy thing in the back of my head Chris Martinson at Peak Prosperity was approaching it from that angle as well in terms of supply chain and energy disruptions. And I would add that I think that all of those are manufactured. These are engineered crises because um, the goal essentially is to make you thoroughly dependent on the state. What they, It's kind of like that old George Carlin joke, you know, what they don't want is like well-informed, intelligent, critical thinking people and independent sustainable people what they want is people dependent on the state for the handouts and so i think that engineering these crises the the food shortages like with the all the fires in in the manufacturing plants and distribution centers i think this is all part of the plan to make people dependent on the state so that they will be willing to accept whatever solution is offered and in this case what we're probably looking at is a central bank digital currency and I think Bitcoin has a lot to do with that, where the, uh, the rise of Bitcoin has maybe caused them to accelerate their plans. It's maybe even caused them to be a little bit sloppy in implementing them. Yeah. That's right, because they see that people are turning on to this alternative. And so they're trying to force us into this central bank digital currency type of situation where everything that you spend is controlled where when and on what you spend your money is controlled and uh, bitcoin obviously offers us a way out of that a way to opt out of that hellish scenario and so they're trying to force rush us into that um, while they well you know most people are still unaware that bitcoin offers an alternative to that scenario do you think you become a target if you own bitcoin in the near future? Possibly. Like I mean, in, in to the some CBDC degree, world, you know, it's like, oh, you're transacting in Bitcoin. Oh, that guy has Bitcoin. Like he has free money. Like, let's get him. That's a, yeah, it's like a sign that he's not going to comply with other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But I personally, I just feel like I'm on every list they've ever made. I mean, I've been literally on those lists since I was 14 years old. I'm an outlaw by nature, always have been. Um, so I don't worry personally that Bitcoin is going to get me in trouble. I think that um, I'm already in trouble. When it comes time to round people up, like I'm on that list with or without Bitcoin. So Bitcoin offers me, you know, some some hope and, and uh, a way to transact outside of the system of control that they're trying to squeeze me into but for others who maybe have tried to live on the straight and narrow it might be the only thing that makes them somewhat of a a target but i mean make no mistake man the state hates you and it wants you dead so the best thing that you can do is opt out of their system of control by buying bitcoin yeah i think uh i think one thing you'll see potentially is like Greenpeace or, you know, people like that, that they won't like come after an individual Bitcoiner, but I could see them like terrorist attacks against mining facilities. Mm. I mean, that's something I could definitely see. They would call them like energy terrorists or something. That's definitely in the future, in my opinion. The other thing is, like he said, he's like, he's on every list. And that's what I was trying to 
I was, we were talking about this before, Mike, it was like, there's these people who they, they, they're so obsessed with like, nobody ever knowing they have Bitcoin, like this, keep your upset. And at some point it's like trying to have their cake and eat it too. Like you, mm-hmm. you gotta, you gotta live your life. You gotta do what you gotta do. You can't just hide. Um, fucking go do what you got. Just get out of there or get out of your situation. If, if you don't feel comfortable well, uh, being yourself there. And I guess some people do need, you know, could have somebody like a target on their back, but most people don't. There, there you is know? a, there is a risk to living. There is, right. Yeah. There right, right. Naturally. But, and but, even more, there's a risk to saying anything that the state doesn't approve of. Mm-hmm. And those right, risks, right. you know, we, we grew up in a, in a society where, that was sort of tongue in cheek. Like you could say whatever you wanted and the state wasn't necessarily targeting you for it, but I I don't think, I don't exactly No, I don't think you can, you can expect that to be the case going forward. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a kind of like a good thing about memes. It kind of keeps you, uh, keeps you posting like ironic bullshit that kind of keeps you off under the radar, makes them kind of overlook you. Don't take you seriously, but yeah, that brings a bit of humor to an otherwise pretty dark situation. For sure. So, all right. Like what the way I will like look at this and maybe like not debate it, but like whenever I hear basically everything you've said has been how the world's been playing out for the past two years and it's all been coming true. Everything we've, they've kind of predicted. They used to call it conspiracy theory. So for lack of a better word, that's what I'll call it. Right. And I always, you know, it's like the agenda or like what they're doing, or it's like a plan. I kind of don't, I, I think it's all happening, but my counter, my, I would post like the question, I, I think it's like not a conscious people at the top having a plan. I mean, there's some that do, but there's like, it's all competing. I think it's more of an emergent, what we see, we're like, pro, people are projecting like all their anxieties, like all their mistrust and they're, and they're kind of like, inst- they're all moving and trending towards essentially everything that we've seen the past few years where this like, it's like a depopulation thing. It's a forced vaccination thing. It's a, just a, you know, we're all pincushions for corporations. It, but I, in my opinion, instead of like the WEF, like planning it, it's just, we're, we've been moving in as a, as a culture of hating or distrusting each other, uh, being more atomized in society and it's like bled out to this we're lashing out at each other now and it's we're, we're creating this like we're pulling ourselves down like it's like self-hatred as like a, as a humanity or some of them are some people are instead of like a, a conspiracy sorry so yeah yeah that's just how i think of it i think of it as more of like an emergent property less so not like a, a top-down uh, thing from some sort of right 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 i, I see how you the other way that. i do think it's it's engineered i think that the right left divisions Partly are emergent, but I, I think that they're in, they're um, they're they're stirred up by a top down. Like there's always been a classist battle of the haves and the have-nots, and this you know goes back to earliest recorded history. We've had a caste system, and some people feel that they're worth more than others, and. We, we have this system where these powerful elites who, by definition, try to keep their numbers small are now outnumbered by the billions. And they sort of see that as a real threat to their control. And I think that they see that the easiest way to maintain control would be to call the herd and to have fewer people to have to control. Hmm. So I would, I, Very so, I would so I would meet that in the middle and say the people at the top are fanning the flames. They're exploiting, they're right. exploiting it to get what they want. They know what to say. They're, they're, they're populists, they're opportunists. And right. you can see, I mean, you can see like all the politics. I mean, I don't know what the fuck the Biden administration is doing, but there's a bunch of vultures, a bunch of opportunists within the federal government that are probably taking advantage of Swiss cheese for brains and, and they're just looting everything on the way they know it's going down they're just looting on on the way out like what i was saying earlier like when they left afghanistan they're just looting everything looting the palace filling their bags with gold and then they're getting out of there and i think that's what they're doing in the united states at least for now so it's more a wave that we're all riding in a way yeah Yeah, i think we're coming up to the end we're coming up to the end of what's called the economic long cycle which is also known as the fourth turning turning, and 
this is something that was described in Zeitgeist, I think back in mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. 2007 was my sort of first introduction to that concept. The idea that for literally three generations, like most of the lifetime of a human being, credit is cheap and made readily available to get everybody into this sort of debt consumer type of cycle. And then once per generation, once per human lifetime, rather, uh, the, the sort of the whole system is rug pulled by spiking interest rates high. And everybody who's in debt to their eyebrows just literally cannot afford to make their payments. They lose everything that they've worked for. And the people who essentially own everything clear the board, take everything and start all over again. And uh, I think that that's, that's the part of the, the cycle that we're at now is we're coming up on that. We've had cheap and easily acquired debt for far too long. And the system is spiraling to the point of unsustainable. We've reached a, I forget the term for it, but we've essentially reached the point where it's impossible to pay down our debt. Like when I was a kid growing up, we used to talk about balanced budgets and oh, we were in a deficit, but if we pay it down, you know, we can get back out. It's physically impossible to pay down the debt that we're in now, the That's interest spiral, rates. Yeah, yeah the yeah. debt spiral. So it's, it's just not possible to get us out of that debt without some type of massive economic collapse. And of course that collapse is horrible for, you know, most people in society who it's great for is the elite because when the collapse happens, everybody's desperately selling off all their assets, just trying to eat. And uh, the rich people who generational wealth come in and just buy up everything on the cheap and start give the start the debt cycle all over again, giving people cheap credit. And they know that if they do this every, you know, 20, 40 years, if they do it every 20 years, people remember, hey, this happened to me. Don't let it happen again. They do it every like 40, 50 years. People are listening to their parents saying, hey, this happened to me. Don't let it happen to you. Don't do it again. But they wait, they do it every 80, 90 years. And essentially that, that wisdom's lost. Nobody is listening to their grandparents about what life was like in the depression. They just, they're too disconnected from the possibility that that could happen to them. And so they fall for the, they, they, they just like a mouse with a trap, they fall for that easy cheese. Yeah. So like what happens when everything starts going bankrupt, right? It gets all the, all the capital, all the land, all the resources, it gets, uh, it gets taken over by either the, the government or, you know, BlackRock and Vanguard. They own everything. They're going to own all the real estate. They're going to own all you know, it's, the, it's amazing that resources. BlackRock is called BlackRock. It's like this sucking vacuum, right? Right. Yeah, and like the World Economic Forum says, you will own nothing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And you will yeah. like it. And you'll like it. Yeah, exactly. So when when do you think when do you think that like this whole thing started the accelerating downward? Do you think it was 2008 or do you think it was 2001? When we got into like all the wars when that started. Yeah, that's that's tough, man. I mean, personally, I I've been a little early on all this stuff. So like I had the opportunity to buy real estate in the early 2000s and i thought we're already at the end of this cycle um mortgage rates had been lower than they'd ever been i thought they were ready to bounce back up um housing prices were at an all-time high i didn't think they were going to just keep growing exponentially and so i didn't buy in two decades ago because i thought we were ready for this to happen already um and and it just didn't yet so I might not be the right guy to ask. I'm a little too proactive in that sense. That's well, it sounds like you're early, you're an early bird right there. That's the second time you're yeah, early. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's better, better to be too early than too late. No, I agree. I, I, agree. I think it's correct. Yeah. You know, I remember in the late '90s when uh, the price of cannabis and the price of gold were the same, and I remember like buying ounces of cannabis to split with my friends and thinking to myself, like if I bought an ounce of gold for every time I bought an ounce of cannabis, like I'd probably be pretty well off, you know? Uh, but I never did buy any. I always sort of felt like I didn't have enough money. Mm -hmm. I did start buying some silver in like the late two thousands. Um, I sold it a few like, years like later. Physical? Yeah. I bought physical yeah. silver. Um, 
around probably 2007 to 2009, I started buying that. Um, I'm glad I sold it because it's only gone down in value since then. Um, but I definitely, after watching Zeitgeist, I mean, I remember the analogy that they used was the game, like, you know, the, the money system, it was kind of like a game of musical chairs. Mm -hmm. And while the music's playing and everybody's dancing, it's all fun and games. But, you know, when the music stops, not everybody gets a seat. And so I saw the problems with the real estate market and physical cash, but um, I didn't really ever get into gold. Um, and I found Bitcoin pretty early in 2011. So um, that was going to be my next question. Uh, what, what was it that you were doing that led you to Bitcoin or how did you find it? What was your, what was its original appeal? Um, well, I've been a program, computer programmer since like 1983. And um, I was quite young at that time. Um, I went to school for computer programming in 1999 so I have a technical background and I just read a couple of headlines about it. And it kind of, I remember reading some headlines and it piqued my interest, but it like slid under my radar. And then it was maybe three months later in about May of 2011, where I came across it again. And the concept of mining was just fascinating to me. And so I went down the rabbit hole, I read the white paper, I got on Bitcoin talk forum and I was just like, I stayed up all night, I stayed up for probably two and a half days or something, just like getting my gaming system set up mining. And um, I just, I found it fascinating from a technical standpoint more than anything. And this is before I understood anything about sound money or, you know, store of value. I, I just really, it appealed to me um, on a technical level. So you've, I mean, so you've been into in it since basically most of the OGs, or at least you started getting into it. So you were around for like all the big events. Like what, uh, did you, were you ever in any way, like, did you get anything lost at Mount Gox or did you ever use Mount Gox? <laughs> did you use black, uh, you know, Silk Road? I use Silk Road. That was the first time I bought Bitcoin, but I just use it for a transaction. I literally never thought about. I sold weed like on Silk Road. Yeah, like I would, yeah, I was buying like drugs to go to a music festival or something, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even think about Bitcoin as anything other than its utility. Yeah, um, I didn't lose any coins to Mt. Gox because I was mining and uh, oh, yeah. I didn't really see the need for an exchange. Um, but also mining was a... Mining was a double-edged sword for me because I saw the I saw some math, I saw a spreadsheet, and it, it basically laid it out like, look, you could either buy some coins or you can buy hardware and mine. And if you the odds, if you spend the same amount of money, the odds are you're gonna get four to five times more coins by buying the coins than you would by buying the hardware and mining the coins. So if you believe in Bitcoin you should buy coins. If you're kind of hedging and you're not sure that Bitcoin isn't going to go to zero, then maybe it makes sense to buy the hardware because you have a physical asset. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I read an article and it, it convinced me that Bitcoin's probably going to go to a million dollars. But at the same time, I still had it in my head, like, but it could also go to zero. So there's this huge upside. But like literally, I remember when Bitcoin broke a dollar, like I was around before Bitcoin was worth one dollar US. Wow, wow, and so when it broke one dollar, that was a big that was a big watermark. It was like people are saying this shit isn't real, but it's worth more than real money. Mm -hmm. So what do you mean? It's not real. However, I still saw it as like kind of a technical um anomaly i saw it as like it's it's fascinating and, it, and it's cool but i just don't know that it's going to achieve global domination i don't know that it isn't going to go to zero so i hedged my bets and instead of buying bitcoin i bought hardware and started mining and that was my biggest regret because not only did i get a lot less coins but then i was selling those coins because i was feeling like i found this this free money hack. I can just pull money out of the internet and it turns into cash. I'm paying my bills. I'm going on vacation. Life is good. And because of that, I had this real reluctance 
to start buying coins because I had been selling them. I sold my first Bitcoin at a hundred dollars. Um, and so to start buying back in at 20 grand was like a tough pill to swallow because like, I you know, if I would have just kept my coins, like what the hell was I doing selling them? If I had any real belief that Bitcoin was going to do what we all know now it's doing, but you know, with in hindsight. So anyway, to answer that question, I didn't lose coins to Mount Gox. I lost all my coins to a guy named fried cat who ran a company called ASIC miner. And essentially he was the compass mining of his day. And so what happened was I was mining on uh, GPUs using gaming computers, custom built gaming computers. And uh, the ASICs had just come on this on the market and butterfly labs was the first one to offer a miner. And I bought one and then I waited six months after I'd paid for it. And they promised delivery in like two weeks. And for six months, I'm watching the difficulty go up. I'm watching the projected profit drop to near zero. And I, they've already got my money. And then finally, like three days before uh, the credit, the limit on uh, using your credit card to get a charge back, they finally mail out my unit. And so I had a tough choice. It's like, it's the, the unit's coming. I, I could, I could accept it and I could mine with it, but I'm reading online and all these people are saying, Hey man, I got my BFL miner and it's dusty. Like they've been using it. They fucking, they, they took my money. They set, took my, my ASIC. They set it up. They mined all the coins for themselves. And now that it's not even profitable, they're sending me the hardware. Wow. And so I was like, fuck that. I, I, I issued a charge back. I got my money back. And I never got my, my ASIC, but then this dude named his Chinese dude named fried cat started a company in China. He had a direct connection to the ASIC manufacturers and he was doing exactly what compass mining is doing today and saying, I've got all this rack space power is cheap here in China. And more than that, you, we, we can turn your miners on today and you can start getting dividends, get paid out in Bitcoin and you don't have to wait for DHL to bring you the hardware. You don't have to wait to get power set up at your home. You know, like you can start mining immediately. And so um, he was accepting Bitcoin payments as uh, sort of like selling shares in his company. It worked a little bit different. You didn't have like a physical machine that you were tied to the way you do with Compass, but essentially he was allowing you to buy in with Bitcoin and receive mining payments in Bitcoin and uh, he basically rug pulled after, you know, this doing the same kind of a situation. Things ran for a little while. I was getting some dividends. I maybe got 1% back what I had paid out. Mm -hmm. And then he rug pulled everything and took all the miners and fucked off. And uh, I lost all my Bitcoin. This is why people on, this is why the Maxis on Twitter are so, uh, so toxic, fucking calling people out for scams. This is the kind of shit. It goes on like crazy well at least in the in the fucking uh shared mining space for bitcoin but you know when you get out to thousand shit coins it's the wild west for sure yeah they're hard-earned lessons man like right I, I literally lost not only what was like a small fortune in like 2013 2014 dollars but like i lost what would be fuck you money today like absolutely like That's Michael tough. Saylor money today, if I would have just held on to that. And so, yeah, it, it's, it is tough, but it does sort of lead to that. Um, having no patience for people in their scams. It's like, just, just take possession of your own coins and secure them to the best of your ability and don't trust anybody. What did you use back in like 2012? Were you just using paper wallets back then? Yeah, they, they didn't have. have yeah, they no, didn't there was no, right? there was no hardware wallet. At least I was around before they they started. Um, yeah, it was just paper wallets, USB sticks, um, backed up. You know, you'd do a couple locations. I, I gave you know one to my dad to keep safe, and and kept one myself. Um, and uh, yeah, there was no, there was no like. Um, keywords like the the whole bip 39 keywords thing came about later so you had to you had to come up with a secure passphrase and that was your only protection wow 
Uh, so you, you know, you, do you still, uh, program or are you still an engineer or is, is it's been a while? I haven't worked in that field since, um, 2001. And so okay, yeah, yeah. it is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. And, um, I, I kind of wish that I had kept it up on the side, even just, just to not get so rusty, but I'm, I'm looking at getting back into the field because honestly, what happened was I didn't like the cubicle environment that I found myself in. I didn't like the, the suits. I didn't like the people. I didn't like the workspace. And I found that I could hustle on my own. I could set my own hours. I could make more money and I could do what I wanted to do instead of what someone else was telling me to do. But more importantly, I didn't like the projects they were giving me. Mm -hmm. All the software that I was coding for work was boring as shit. And I didn't find anything that really held my attention until I found Bitcoin. And like I said, I stayed up for like two and a half days or something, getting my miners configured and just kind of going down that rabbit hole. And I found that an enormous amount of fun, but I still didn't. And I, I, in hindsight, this is another one of my biggest regrets is I didn't like start coding my own mining pool or developing my own wallet or my own exchange or something. It was like, Oh, well, like there's already pools, there's already wallets, there's already like exchanges. I don't need to do that. And now looking at it a decade later, it's like most of those are gone. And most of the ones that we, we like these days have only come about in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And it would have been really nice to use that early position to continue to develop some type of Bitcoin software project. And I, I wish I had. So we're, we're still early. We're still early. So the reason, right. yeah, the reason, the reason I asked was because I'm thinking about it, right? Like you just, you, you said it perfectly. You didn't like the cubicle, the suit, the tie, the dipshit middle manager, right? You didn't like that environment. Well, now with, I mean, like, Hey, you could just remote work now. Like I was, you can work from anywhere, but most importantly, like with lightning, right? Like you could be out off the grid, quote unquote, with a node and, uh, uh, what's the internet called there? Starlink, dude. You yeah. got like you got a bank. You got just code out. You get back into coding. You develop some sort of software mm -hmm. that makes somebody's life a little bit easier. Boom! Now they're streaming. You sat straight to your node. You're just out in the middle of nowhere. Or you know you could. Uh, who is better positioned to benefit from Bitcoin Lightning payments than the fucking cannabis industry, especially in the United States? Like can't they can't bank they can't send they can't use uh federal banks they can't accept credit cards they can't accept debit cards but you self-custody your bitcoin right to your node and all your shops like that would be i think a huge disruptor or there's a lot just a lot of potential there and it's something you could do from like i said chopping wood out in the forest in the mountains and you could still have your run your business your coding business from your node and have your money sent straight to you yeah, you're speaking my language, man. This is definitely the Venn diagram overlap of cannabis and Bitcoin that I have considered, which you're right, is more suited for the United States because of their banking. There's the state state approval, but the federal prohibition and the, the fact that many of them aren't able to use banking services. Here in Canada, it's not that way. Um, here in Canada, the cannabis businesses are fully banked. So there's sort of less of a demand for that. Um, but I, I definitely early last year, I saw that as a possibility and I'm like, maybe I can get down to the States and start hustling lightning setups to cannabis dispos and sort of like bridge those two worlds that I've, I've straddled for the last decade or two. And unfortunately, then what we started hitting was like the travel problems where it was like. I either wasn't allowed to go to the States because of my vaccination status, or even before that was locked in, I just saw the writing on the wall. And I'm like, I don't want to get locked out away from home um, and not be able to travel. In fact, that actually goes back all the way to January 2020, where I was ready to go down to Mexico again. I, I spent... Um, Six, five, six months traveling Central America in 2012 
living off my Bitcoin, actually. But I flew down for a music festival at the end of the Mayan calendar at the Chichen Itza Pyramid. Widespread panic? Well, what's that? Was it widespread panic? The one in, no, no. Uh, I, oh. I went to a music festival called Synthesis 2012, and it was held okay. at the Mayan Pyramid of Chichen Itza on the last day of the Mayan calendar. And I just, I went for three weeks and planned to come home and I was having such a great time. I canceled my flight across the border to Guatemala for a new year's event. Uh, the next thing I know, I was renting a house in Guatemala. I stayed there for a month. I was looking for events. And then I found Envision all the way down in Costa Rica. Um, it was six weeks out or something. So I took my time and I traveled through El Salvador, Honduras, uh, Nicaragua, and, and eventually to Costa Rica where um, and then I spent a month in Costa Rica with, uh, with a woman who became my wife briefly. Uh, we went to Panama for a week. And then when I realized um, that, you know, my Bitcoin proceeds weren't going to last forever at the rate I was burning through them, we turned around from, from Costa Rica and came back through um, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Mexico, and then flew back to Canada from Cancun. And um, so a decade later, um, I was recently divorced and I found myself like, I think I should go back. Like I never had more fun in my life than on that adventure. So, um, but, but when I went the first time, I was paying rent back here. Like I still had a place. I only went for three weeks, I thought. So I was paying rent up here while also living out of hotels and hostels and paying for, um, you know, bus rides cross country and stuff like that down there. And I thought to myself, man, I could live down here forever if I wasn't still paying rent back home. So next time I come, I'm, I'm packing my shit up. I'm, I'm like shutting everything down and I'm coming down here for good. So I was ready to do that in like January 2021 when COVID hit. And I was, again, a little bit early, but I'm like, there's going to be all kinds of travel restrictions. They're going to lock shit down. And I don't know that I want to get locked down away from home mm -hmm. as much as I would like to be there. I like the option of coming and going. And if I'm going to be locked down, I'd probably rather be locked down near my friends and family, you know, near the places that I know well, places where I can bug out to uh, eventually if needed. And so then the same kind of thing happened when I was considering this uh, lightning cannabis industry blend like we were talking about. I was like, I'd love to go to the States and try to hustle that, but I'm not sure that, A, I don't know if I can even get in. And then shortly after that, I officially could not. And now it's changed. Maybe I could cross now. It seems like it's hit or miss. I can't fly, but I could potentially try to drive across the border. And it seems like it's up to the border crossing guards discretion of whether or not you can get in. Um, so I just, I thought about it and, and I think that's a great, like you, like you said, merging the, the unbanked cannabis industry, that sort of gray market is a perfect use case for Bitcoin and, and lightning in particular. Um, so I, I do think that's a huge opening. Um, but it's, it's not easy as a Canadian to work legally in the United States. You know, you need, you can't just go down there and hustle, or at least not legally. Um, you know, you need a sponsor from, from a company who's going to get you a, a visa. And um, I, I haven't found that opportunity yet. And that's fucking, that's tough. I don't know when that's going to change, but hopefully soon but i don't know are you guys going to get rid of like is there any chance of getting rid of trudeau at any point in the next few years or is he kind of entrenched we just had an election and he won i don't think he's going anywhere um and by the time he does you know he'll have achieved everything he needs to do and you know the next guy will be just as bad i'm sure um i know pierre polivare is is running for leadership of the conservative party i think he's he's a pretty solid bitcoin guy i think he's kind of maybe new to it but he's he's got the right attitude of asking the right questions about the central banks and the money printer the problems that that causes and so um, he's kind of taken up the bitcoin brand lately and i think he would be a great guy i don't see it happening and even if he does win honestly i i don't see the system's too entrenched i don't i don't see um, even if Trudeau is somehow ousted, I don't see that the changes in policy that he's made will go away. 
You know, governments like to take more and more and more power. They don't give it back. So just because the conservatives take over and kick the liberals out, they're not going to give us all our rights back and undo all these emergency measures and all that. No, nah, they're just going to hold that line for themselves. And then the next time the liberals take office again, you know, they start pushing forward on your rights once more. But at most, the conservatives will hold the line. They're not about to start dialing things back that work in their favor. Right. That's true. Um so yeah, all right. I gotta ask, like, what's you talked about this like crazy trip to Central America? You living in the wilderness now? Like, what's the hairiest situation you've gotten yourself into? Where you're like, good, ah, fuck, good, I don't. Good question. I don't know. I don't know if I'm gonna make it, or I might not. You know, I'm gonna be fucked. Um, I guess that might be a tie between the time I got robbed in Guatemala. Um, so. As a little bit of a background, I've spent over two decades practicing with with weapons as part of Chinese Kung Fu training. And so I was uh, quite proficient with the use of a sword. And so I took a machete uh, to Central America and I carried that machete everywhere. And I mean, by carried it, I mean, most of the time it was in my hand. I um, finally in Costa Rica on the way back, somebody convinced me to buy like a, a scabbard a sheath for it. And so then it kind of hung from my belt. But most of the time I was literally just walking around with a machete in my hand. I go into restaurants and eat with it. Like <laughs> I, I, I didn't go anywhere without a fucking machete. Um, but when I, when I met the, the woman who became my wife, you know, she was, she expressed some concern like, Hey, are, you know, are you looking for an excuse to use that thing? Like, is this going to be a problem? And I, I expressed to her that no, like this is a last resort self-defense thing. And from what I understand, most of the robberies in Central America are just a business transaction. These guys know that they can, they can take your wallet and your cash and send you on your way. And the cops aren't going to do shit. They're never going to be able to find them. And for the most part, nobody gets hurt. So I told her if I feel like that's what's going to happen, then I will just give up my wallet and my cash rather than, um, you know, risk some type of physical confrontation. That said, what I didn't take into account was the appeal of like a pretty blonde haired, blue eyed white girl in Central America. And so I found myself um, watching these two guys approach downhill in the dark fairly quickly. And my spidey senses were already tingling when I realized that the, the one in the back had a machete and the one in the front had a knife. And I had like one moment to choose on whether or not to draw my weapon and try to kill these guys before they could basically, you know, like, you know, before they, they reached us, before they got into right. range. Right. And I realized like we've had this saying in my martial arts training, this is a common saying, but in a, in a knife fight, the winner goes to the hospital, the loser goes to the morgue. Mm -hmm. right and so i knew i was under no illusions that like i'm somehow going to be this hero that's going to kill these two guys and the two of us are going to walk away unscathed it's not happening and worse what's probably going to happen is i'll i'll get the one guy first i'll catch him by surprise and the next one will probably kill the woman that i'm with while i right. am unable to respond in time mm -hmm. and so i saw the situation happening and in like the blink of an eye i had to make a choice on whether or not to just um, let them do whatever they wanted and, or, or to resist. And it's like, you either resist 100% or you comply 100%. Middle ground does not work very well. Mm -hmm. So I made the choice to comply. And then I wondered for a moment uh, if I had made the wrong choice because the one guy shook me down, took my wallet, took my cash, seemed surprised when he found the machete. Like they didn't notice that I had this weapon and he was kind of shocked when he was taking the machete off me. Um, but the other guy was really angry and um, I couldn't quite figure out why he was so angry. What's this dude so pissed about? And um, you know, my Spanish wasn't great, but I, I was able to sort of ask him like, what's the problem? And he told me like fumar mota, which to me, I realized meant you're smoking weed. And mm. I was like, what? What's like, why do you care that I'm smoking weed? Why is that a problem? And he's like, policia. 
is like, you know, you're going to attract the cops with the smell of that weed. And I'm out here trying to make a living. You're going to get me in trouble. And I just thought like the irony of this situation where this guy is in the middle of committing an armed robbery is so upset that I'm smoking cannabis. Um, but anyway, after like, yeah, I kind of, I tried not, to, I mean, it wasn't a laughing matter at the time, but I was right. just like stunned by like this situation. And I was like, okay, well, we're going to go now. And I like left them uh, with all my money and my camera and, and whatnot. And, and I just, we left and, uh, and then unfortunately we're, we're, we're heading down the path, try to look towards safety and just about stumble on three bodies in the dark laying on the ground. Like what the fuck? And it's these tourists that we had had lunch with, we were hanging out with. And, um, and then this dude jumps out of the bush with another machete and he's screaming at me in Spanish. I don't understand. And one of the guys that I had lunch with, he's translating for me. He's like, he wants you to get down on the ground. It's like, oh, shit. So now we're face down on the ground. And it turns out what had happened was these three guys robbed, came on upon these other three tourists, got them subdued, laid face down on the ground. And then two of them came uphill to find me and the woman I was with. And they shook me down for my money. It was about 100 bucks or something, my camera, my phone. And, uh, and they fucked off and they left this one guy managing the other three. And, and when I got there, we came down the hill and he was like super pissed. Like, where's your money? I was like, well, your buddies took it. And I don't know if they were going to share with him because he seemed pretty upset by that. Um, but then, then he said something that kind of like took a minute before it tickled some memories. And he said, our buddies are in the bush watching you and yeah, we want you to stay here and don't move for the next 10 minutes. And if you move, they're going to come out of the trees and kill you. And so um, then he left. And, uh, the, 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 you know, the five of us that were there were discussing, like, odds are there's nobody in the trees. The odds are these guys have booked it and they're trying to just get as far away from here as possible. There's nobody hanging out and watching us. On the other hand, we don't really have anything to gain by moving in the next 10 minutes. Like just in case we're going to oblige, we're going to hang out here for 15 minutes and, and just wait until, you know, it feels safe. And only then did it dawn on me that this was actually a story I had heard at the hostel that like, this was just sort of a, the standard operating procedure for these guys. And this exact quote, was something I had heard and, and uh, realized like, shit, man, it's probably not true, but you never know. Again, dead tourists is not good for business. What these guys want is your wallet, right. your watch, right. you know, and, and they want to go home safe. They don't want to be arrested. They don't want right. a manhunt. So probably not. But on the other hand, you know, there was nothing to be gained by like resisting. There was nothing to be gained by running sure. off in search of the police so we just waited our 15 minutes and then, uh, and then, and then left. And, uh, so I'd say the scariest situation is a toss up between that and about 48 hours ago when I came face to face with a bear outside my cabin. And wow. so I did post a video. This was the video that I posted was the night before. And I woke up in the middle of the night and, uh, something was rummaging around my campsite. And I yelled out to my dog because I thought maybe it's her, but odds probably not. And she woke up and started barking when I when I woke her up and I realized, nope, that's definitely not her making the noise. So I uh, got out a firearm and I went down and I peek out my door. And sure enough, there's a fucking big ass bear like 30 feet away. And actually, he was like five feet out. He was two feet outside my door rummaging through my shit. But when the dog started barking and I started yelling, he uh, he ran over to the nearest tree and he was kind of like hanging out at this tree. But then I'm looking out the door. I'm shining my headlight, the headlamp on him. I'm yelling at him, go away, bear. And, and he's like, he's not budging. And so I got out my phone and I made this little video and I was like, check this out. There's a bear outside my door. I open up the door. I shine the light on the bear and I yell at him, go away. And he doesn't fucking move. So. I emptied the clip in his general direction. I wasn't trying to hit him, but I was just trying to scare him away. And, uh, and he moseyed away. He looked, you know, he, he kind of ran away, but he didn't go far. And he came back three times that night. And so, it, and it got to the point where 
no matter how much I would shoot at him, he was getting more and more desensitized to the sound of the gunfire. He was not afraid of it. Um, but I, I, I ended up lighting a big fire outside and I just like, I brought the dog outside and, and I kept the gun on my lap and I just sat outside waiting for him to come back and just try to keep him away from the site. I didn't want him learning that this is a place he could come and fuck around. So that was, that was the one night, but that wasn't really what was scary. I, I, I didn't feel scared at that point. The, what was scary was the next day when I realized that he was on the hill above my site all day watching me. And my dog kept going up there and barking at him. And finally, I was like, oh, man, I, I think she's probably barking at the bear. Let's go find out. And so I took a bigger gun this time and I went up the hill. And sure enough, I come across the crest of the hill and fuck, he wasn't more than 15, 20 feet away. Wow. And we're face to face and he's not moving. And again, I'm, my dog's like she's charging. It. I'm trying to call her back because I don't want her to get hurt. But she's like pretty much attacking this bear. He doesn't give a fuck. He's not moving. He's looking straight at me. I'm yelling at him. He doesn't he doesn't budge, man. And finally, I let off a shot and uh, he kind of turns around and moves 15 feet, turns back around to look at me again. I let off another shot. He goes like another 30 feet. He stops. He's looking at me again. Um, and finally, like, you know, we're only allowed five rounds in Canada and at least on any anything except the 22. So with with the gun I had, I was only allowed to have five rounds. So I ended up using four of them just trying to get him to move. And then it kind of dawned on me like, shit, man, I've only got one round left in this thing. If he decides that he's coming at me, um, I don't like my odds. Um, it's I don't have a full magazine anymore. And oh, so wow. that's when I that's when I got fucking scared because um, the bear was learning that this gun isn't much more than a noisemaker. It doesn't mm -hmm. hurt and he doesn't hurt and it doesn't stop him from coming back. So I think he was kind of looking at me. The, I didn't like the look in his eye, man. It kind of felt like he was deciding whether or not he was going to eat me. Like my experience with bears has generally been mid season hiking. You know, you come across a bear in the bush, they're well fed. They don't want anything to do with you. for the most part. They hear you coming. They leave you alone. If they see you, if they don't see you or smell you to the last minute, you kind of yell make a ruckus and they'll fuck off. But this bear was not leaving me alone. He was thoroughly deciding whether or not it was worth trying to eat me. And I'm down to one round. So I was like, I think I'm going to go back. And I finally got the dog under control. It was like, let's go back to the cabin. And um, so that was probably tied. Those two events were tied for maybe my scariest. And uh, I've been fortunate that for the last 48 hours, the bear has not come back. Wow. Wow. Well, that's story. standard, standard uh, life <laughs> issues. Um, dude, thanks for coming on here. But I have fucking... to ask a question. Oh, yeah, yeah sorry. Up. I have to ask a question. When do you ever see people in your situation? Oh, and beyond that, um, were you concerned about the noise exposure that might that the shooting might bring you? And did that factor into this story? Yeah, great question. Um, and so it just so happens that some people have set up a ghetto shooting range like not far from my spot. And so I don't worry about the shots too much because I hear other people out there shooting sometimes. Also, I think we're far enough away that um, nobody is hearing the shots from their home. Mm -hmm. Now, if anyone else is out there camping or something, they might, they might hear them, but they'll just think that someone's at the target range sighting in a gun or something. So I don't worry about that too much. Mm -hmm um <clears throat> as for the other question yeah, do you see other people yeah and so um since i've been out here i've uh, i generally will drive to town every other day or so just to sit and have coffee mm -hmm. and just like be in a social environment mm -hmm. meet some of the locals um and then on top of that maybe once every couple of months I will go back to the city that I'm from and uh, stay for a week or something and visit 
some people I went to visit my mom for Christmas. I went back um, to, and, and also because I didn't, I literally couldn't bring all the stuff I wanted. So I've made like three trips back and forth. And each time I'll stay a few days, visit some friends, um, do some errands, and then bring some more gear back with me. So I've probably got three cars full of gear out in the bush, um, which will make it tough to move when it's time to go. Mm-hmm. But it gives me an excuse to go back and see people once in a while. But even while I'm out here, I'll just go to town to go to the nearest place and uh, sit and have coffee. I was fortunate to find a place that wasn't enforcing apartheid during the vaccination thing. They weren't forcing masks even when they were supposed to. And so it kind of felt like, you know, my, my tribe. I found a spot where I liked the people and I would just go and, and hang out have a coffee and shit post on Twitter <laughs> from the comfort of a cafe rather than from my cabin in the bush once a, once every couple of days. Nice. Nice, man. Well, Ninja, thank you so much for uh, coming on uh, this evening. It was a pleasure uh, speaking with you. And I, I definitely want to, uh, you know, speak again for sure. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything you want to say or, or shout out or anything like that? um yeah the state hates you and wants you dead you're to hear you're to hear first folks on high hash rate all right guys uh i'm gonna stop recording weird oh wait 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 i do have to ask you do you want people to find more about you or your work uh if you don't then don't worry about it yeah i mean you can find me at uh diligent well what what's my current handle here is like diligent ninja the dark tetrad um i'm i I was i like he like uh, dan said i've been through a number of accounts so originally i was diligent ninja at at diligent ninja on twitter that account got nuked um i tried like diligent ninja one two three four five six all went by in about a week then i was ghost of diligent ninja right now i'm at ninja underscore diligent on twitter so you can find me there Fucking dope, man. Thank you for coming on. Cheers. Thanks for the invite. Thanks again for listening to the High Hash Rate podcast. You can find us at, at High Hash Rate on Twitter. And we'll see you in the next one. Yeah.